Hello everyone, and welcome to this podcast by the Trainees and Members Committee of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. My name is Dr Jonathan Bargett, and I'm an acute medical registrar in the southeast of Scotland. Today I'm joined by Dr Ingrid Houtzer. She is a post-CCT neurology trainee who has done a PhD specialising in functional neurological disorders. Welcome Ingrid. Thank you very much. So today this podcast is focusing on functional neurological disorders. First, can you just start by telling listeners, why are we talking about this today, Andrew? Um, so again, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am obviously passionate about functional neurological disorders, but I think that the main reason that lots of people that aren't passionate about neurology in general should be interested in functional neurological disorders is just because of how prevalent they are. So they are the third most common cause for somebody to attend an outpatient neurology clinic which means that we're all seeing lots and lots of these disorders. And I think that there's something that until relatively recently, we sort of just swept under the carpet and it was a, well, this is not a neurological problem. Um, and then you have people that can't move or are having lots of seizures or um, lots of blackouts and that have got visual disturbance and all these other sort of symptoms that there's no good explanation for. And I think that makes care very, very difficult. So. Um, what we're hoping to do is, in an evidence-based and sensible manner, is move forward understanding and also kind of get this to be part of general neurology thought processes. So we always start whenever we see a person with trying to sort of localise the lesion. Is it upper motor neuron? Is it lower motor neuron? Is it extrapyramidal? Or is it functional? I think that that's just got to be our fourth major topic in terms of when we're classifying patients. And there is really very good evidence now with good sensitivity and specificity in various tests that we can demonstrate to patients about why we're making the diagnosis. And I think greater understanding of this means that people will be talking about it earlier on in the differential diagnosis list. And I think it normalizes what is actually a very common and very important condition in neurology. And as I've said, in acute medicine all over um, Scotland and the UK and the world, in fact. That's a really good introduction to this, Ingrid. Um, can, can I ask then, just so um, following on from that, how do we recognise when a patient is presenting with um, a functional neurological disorder at the front door in our general receiving or uh, acute medical admissions unit? Yeah, um, so thank you very much. What a lovely question to ask. So what I would say is anybody that needs sort of a cheat sheet about FND should look on, if you just Google, BMJ, functional neurological disorder infographic. And that is the thing that you should have in your pocket in A&E or at the front door, because it really sums up everything that there is that kind of we need to have as an initial diagnostic tool. So there the positive diagnosis signs that we look for in weakness. So is weakness of hip extension that normalizes with contralateral hip flexion. Okay. And the way that we get to test that in people is we just say, look, can you push down onto the floor or onto the bed as hard as you can, push down as hard as you can, and what you'll find is that that's weak. That's hip extension weakness. And then actually, that shouldn't be weak in anybody that's got sitting balance, even in people that have got very severe MS and other conditions. But when you get the person to focus on the other leg that's not weak and push up very strong against your hand with hip flexion, what you'll find is that the hip extension weakness normalizes. And it's such a nice sign because you can show it to patients and you can say, can I just show you something while you're doing the examination? 
And that really leads you very nicely into explaining what the condition is and why you've made the diagnosis. The hip abductor sign is kind of exactly the same sign. And like I said, I'm, I'm hoping that anybody that's listening to this might have a quick Google and it'll just come up and you'll be able to look at the same time with this. So hip abductor sign is basically the same idea. So it is weakness of hip abduction. So pushing, push your hand out against, sorry, push your hip out against my hand as strong as you can, and you'll be able to overcome that. But then whenever you push, get them to push with the other side and the strong leg out against your hand, what you'll find is you can no longer push the weak leg in. And that is, again, these are automatic movements that come out. And what we often say to patients and patients tell us is that the more that they concentrate on the weak leg, actually the weaker it gets. And you can, again, demonstrate to them this to them when you're examining them. You say, oh gosh, it feels like it's getting weaker the more you're concentrating on that leg. And they say, yes, it is. And then again, that is just becomes part of your explanation as to why you're causing this. So then that's movement. So that's basically people that present with a, a functional limb weakness or, or paresis. Okay, and then we look at movement disorders um, and we particularly look at sort of tremor. So oftentimes, you remember, we sort of divide tremor into sort of rest tremor or action tremor. Um, and in lots of patients that have got functional neurological disorders, they'll have tremor that is just really debilitating and is present there at rest and action, postural. It's just there all the time um, and it gets in the way of, of a lot of things. There are two really nice things you can do and ideally kind of in pre-COVID times what you do is you get that their family member to video while you're doing the examination so you can show them again exactly what you're what you're demonstrating. But basically so there's there's entrainment so where you get the person to exactly copy what you're doing and that is you with your finger going really really fast or really slow and changing the tempo and making it hard. Okay, it's got to be it's got to be something that really is pulling away the um, abnormal self-directed attention of the person, and they really are having to focus on this and allow the automatic movements to come out. And what you'll find then is is that the person's tremor will start to entrain, so it becomes the same rhythm as your tremor that you're showing the person. This is a bit easier with the video, but there's some very good videos, and um, particularly in practical neurology, and um, Broper et al. Um, has done a, a nice video of this. And then there's another one again, a ballistic movement. So basically you just get them to move their arm very, very quickly. And what you'll also often find is that the tremor will stop just for a millisecond. And these are really nice things because first of all, they're ways to make a positive diagnosis of a functional tremor, but also it's an in in terms of therapy. So you're saying, look, when we can get your brain distracted, when we can get your brain doing something else, what happens is that this tremor stops for a second. And that means that we can use these sort of techniques in physiotherapy in order to get back control of this in order to stop this tremor. And then dissociative seizures. So these are really very common. And I think that um, you'll find a lot of kind of in a lot of people sort of turning up sort of does this person have epilepsy? Does this person have a dissociative seizure? They can often look very alike. There are some definite things that are different in terms of kind of pointing us more in one direction than the other. The things that sort of favor dissociative seizures are a long duration of individual events. So as in somebody who is having kind of prolonged events of either lying completely still for more than five minutes or as having sort of shaking events that are lasting more than five minutes. So I was surprised by this when I started in neurology. Seizures last 90 seconds or less. 
Um, and so something where the person is actually shaking for more than five minutes or they're lying completely still for more than five minutes, that is, that is much more likely to be dissociative. And it's very important when someone says, oh, it lasted five minutes, when the collateral history person says that, that you double check with them. Because I don't know, I mean, I was going to say, I don't know if you've seen an epileptic seizure. And then I was like, sorry, I forgot who I'm talking to. Sorry, acute medics of the world. I'm shaming myself. What I was going to say was, and basically, epileptic seizures are terrifying and dissociative seizures are terrifying for the family. And as we all know, in moments of extreme stress, time changes. And so what we often ask in neurology is, I know you said five minutes, but could it have been 30 seconds? And a lot of times people will say, yes, it could actually. So you really need to make sure that someone's actually timed this event or that the person did three or four or five things. You know, so I went out of the room and I got this person and then I went in and I did this. You know what I mean? Just to make sure you've actually got that duration of five minutes. But then other things that are really important are sort of side to side head or body movements during convulsion. Closed eyes are also quite helpful. Ictal crying, so pretend often so people will, because it's a really horrible feeling, they will often um, kind of start crying whenever they're coming out of it. Recall during events. So basically, so afterwards or whenever we're taking the history, one of our kind of regular questions we ask people is, can you ever hear people during your event? Or can you ever hear somebody but not be able to respond during the events? And again, people with dissociative seizures will say yes, where people with epileptic seizures will say no. Not everybody with a dissociative seizure will recall things, but sometimes they will be able to sort of follow commands during an event as well. So things like talking calmly to the person and asking them just if they can, can they squeeze your hand and things like that. Those things are, are often quite helpful in terms of kind of differentiating one from the other. And, um, and I think it's really important as well for all of us to know that a lot of times people in dissociative seizures, they have some awareness of what's happening around them. So they might not be able to respond, but sometimes they can hear things and particularly sort of kind of unpleasant things or scary things. They'll, they'll hear that. They'll hear people around them crying or being very afraid and things like that. And so I think that as medics, if we think that it's a dissociative seizure, we act kindly and calmly and just, you know, sort of obviously have somebody with them um, and, and, and just really try to, to just do that in a way, I suppose, in which, in which allows the patient to know that they're safe um, and that there's sort of calm, calmness around them. And also some other things um, which aren't on the sort of the, the, the kind of key list are things like, you know, if someone's been having, um, you know, a very prolonged generalized seizure with lots of sort of body movements for more than five minutes and they still got sort of saturations of 99%, well, again, that wouldn't be in keeping with an epileptic seizure. So those kind of things are just all important sort of in terms of looking at, at the whole context of the situation. I mean, I think those are kind of the key, the key kind of patients with functional neurological disorder that we're, we're likely to meet sort of at the front door. That's really useful, Ingrid. And I think your key point that I've picked up on is that the history is the most important aspect of the assessment. Um, the, the things that we often overlook is that those specific detailed points that you've mentioned. Um, so Apart from the history that I've, that I've referred to, are there any instances when these clinical scenarios aren't quite fitting and our patients need further investigations? And if so, what, what investigations would we 
um, would, would we assess for? Yeah, so I actually think, and, and it's our practice within the sort of the functional neuro, neurological disorder sort of research group, is that is that everybody with a functional neurological disorder usually also needs investigation in terms of sort of MRI brain and whole spine, if it's somebody who's got um, a, a kind of a, a functional weakness. Um, and if someone's got dissociative seizures, then we would do an MRI brain as well. Um, and the reason for that is that so, so um, functional neurological disorders are usually triggered off by something. And for many people, it's something where basically the brain changes from this sort of predictive model that we're normally going on with. And so our brain is normally just basically ignoring most of the information. So everyone listening to this at the minute, you're probably not that aware of how comfortable your chair is or you know, where your foot is or what it's touching or um, what kind of shoes you have on until I start to talk about them. And then suddenly your brain refocuses attention to that. And that's because the brain is basically on this sort of predictive model of I'm sitting on a chair and I'm listening to somebody talk. So, um, so that brain is doing at the minute. It still has access to all of the information, the sensory stuff coming up the way, but it's working on a predictive model because that is the most sort of sensible and efficient way for your brain to work. Um, and now I'm so busy talking about that, I've completely forgotten what my point was. Uh, what was your question again? Sorry, Jonathan. So from, from what you've said, it sounds like some of our patients do and should perhaps have further investigation, such as imaging. Sorry. Yes. So what we tend to do is, so we tend to investigate everybody with um, an MRI brain and hold spine. Um, or with an MRI brain. And that is because there's usually a trigger for a functional neurological disorder, be that weakness or be that a dissociative seizure. And some of those triggers are kind of physiological. So we say, so migraines, um, really unpleasant sensations, um, panic attacks, um, fainting, any of these kind of things are often the thing that changes our brain from a predictive model to a focused model, so an abnormally sort of self-directed attention model. And that is what we see in functional neurological disorders. And, and obviously one of the key things that will change your brain's attention is something neurological. So be that a small inflammatory lesion that's triggered it off, be that actual sort of epileptic seizures, all of these things, you know, you have to have your ear out for both of these things. And that's why, I would say that the diagnosis of a functional neurological disorder should be made by a neurologist or another practitioner who has seen a lot of patients with, um, with neurology. So basically what we want to be doing is we want to be empowering all doctors to be able to say in the same way that, that they say about most things like, look, I think you know, this is likely to be a stroke. This is likely to be heart attack. This is likely to be whatever else. And then the same way with this, with functional neurological disorders, this is likely to be a functional neurological disorder, you know, but obviously you want to have that extra step of specialist input as well. So you're looking, you're listening out for both, but definitely these patients do need to be investigated. And, and we're very upfront with patients in terms of saying, look, we're going to investigate you, we expect this to be normal, but we're looking for a trigger for your symptoms. That's a really useful insight into your working process. When you do see the patients that have been referred to you and you've identified these positive criteria for diagnosis, 
How do you go about explaining the diagnosis of a functional neurological disorder to our patient? Yeah, so that's a, a lovely question. Um, and actually lots of papers have been, have tried to kind of make this as easy as possible for people. Um, because I think it's still something still in neurology that we still are all finding kind of, we're finding our way. And I think that a lot of people have a lot of fear about this. And what I would say is be normal. <laughs> you know, just, this is just another condition. Just like epilepsy or, you know, Guillain-Barre or any of these other things where you would say, look, you've got a functional neurological disorder. And the reason that you have this is because you've got this positive evidence of functional weakness. And then I say, can I show you this sign? And I show them Hoover sign or thioductor sign. And I say, look, and then I demonstrate it ideally to another person who's with them as well. So they're other person. And you say, look, this is why we're making this diagnosis. And And I say, look, you know, the harder you try with that leg, the weaker it gets. But when we can really get your brain to focus on this other pathway, um, on this other leg, then it comes back. So that's whenever the automatic movements kind of kick in again. And I don't just show it to them once. I often will say, look, can I just show you that again and say, okay. And I say, look, we, we see this. This is a good, really good sign of functional neurological disorder. It's got very good sensitivity and specificity. And, um, and then I say, look, I'm going to tell you a bit more about a functional neurological disorder. And again, just going back to the cheat sheet, um, which is that BMJ infographic, they've described it really beautiful. They say, functional neurological disorder describes the disorder of the voluntary motor or sensory system, which has been linked to corruption of pre-conscious phases of motor planning. And that's lovely. And that's why you've got your cheat sheet in your pocket, because no one's going to be able to say that um, off the top of their heads. But I think what I would say is I say, like, look, this is what this is. And um, what that means is that this isn't a hardware problem. It's a software problem. And a bit like your computer. So when your computer isn't working, it's usually not that you have to actually uh, get a new sort of like actual computer or it's not that your Intel core processor is broken or something like that. What it is oftentimes is that there's a virus and so the software is not working well. And that's exactly what's happening with you. So actually, we can see that when we can distract the brain away, the automatic strength is still there. But right now, the software that's sending the information from your leg up to your brain is not working right. And so we need to retrain your brain. And the way that we do that is with physiotherapy. But the physiotherapy techniques we use are quite different from normal physiotherapy. So don't worry if you haven't made much progress with normal physiotherapy. We often see that in patients that have got functional neurological disorders because normally physiotherapy gets you really to focus on the weak part of your body. Whereas actually with functional neurological disorders, what we want to do is get your brain to focus away because you have this abnormal self-directed attention. So your brain is using the wrong network. The software is not working. And that's why we're not getting the signals to the, from the leg to the brain and back down to the leg again in the normal way. But there is good treatment physiotherapy. And then what I say is, like, what I'd like you to do is have a look at this website. Or if you can, if you have access to a printer, it's much better to actually just print out the information leaflets from neurosymptoms.org. That's neurosymptoms.org, which is another kind of key website. And again, everybody's got a smartphone, but I think if you give somebody a piece of paper, they take it home with them and they read it. And then the person that they live with or the people that they love also read it. 
And then they often come to clinic and they say, yes, you know, actually this doctor gave me this information, Lisa, and it all made sense. And then actually what we're saying is, yes, aren't we so lucky? We've got great colleagues in AMU, as we often say. And so and we say, look, what we're going to do is just go through the story again and show do the examination again and confirm this diagnosis. That's really helpful, Ingrid. And thank you for being so clear in your explanation of, of how we can help our patients who present with functional neurological disorder. So what would be your key points and your, your take-home messages for our listeners today from this clinical conversation? So key points are, it's really common. It's not scary. Patients are relieved to know what is wrong with them. Second key point is, please have a Google of BMJ, recognizing functional neurological disorders infographic. Don't need to read the article, just the infographic and put it in your back pocket. And then the third thing I'd say is neurosymptoms.org is your friend as a website. And it's going to get revamped. It's going to be really fancy very soon. Um, if you can, print off the information and give it to the person. And then the very last thing I would say is let's have this as part of normal practice. This is a normal diagnosis in neurology. It is really common. Let's just think upper motor neuron, lower motor neuron, extrapyramidal functional. This is just normal neurology. And actually, you guys are great at it. Trust yourselves. Okay. And let's just, if we're not sure, let's just put it in the differential early. This could be a stroke. It could be inflammatory or it could be a functional neurological disorder. It could be one of those three things. I'm not sure. That's why I'm referring to the, you to the neurologist. That is totally fine to say, but we'd much rather you said it early as part of your differential than that it kind of comes out of the blue later on, because obviously that makes people feel like maybe it's not a real diagnosis. So I think let's just normalize it. This is normal neurology. Okay. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much, Dr. Hartzer. And thank you for coming on to the podcast tonight. I would like to thank you everyone for listening and please feel free to leave any comments via our Instagram and Twitter pages or via the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. Thank you once again, Dr. Ingrid Halter. And I'm so sorry. And if everyone's on Twitter, may I suggest following FND Portal, who is both hilarious and also amazing at explaining functional neurological disorders. Totally great and uh, definitely worth your while if you're on Twitter to follow him. Will do. And I'm sure that we can attach the information and the links that you've suggested. Once again, thank you very much.